hit that record button welcome to the protectors podcast excellent guest today and an excellent co-host first i have to give emma adair the the kudos for coming back on a show every time we have the new york times best-selling authors on or just high-class authors well just really all the authors because all the authors are great we've had on uh emma welcome and then doug brunt Thank you. doug welcome Jason, to the emma, show thanks so much for having me Oh, this is great. I love having authors on. I love talking about it, especially now that I'm jumping into like the real writing world. Not like, listen, I love, I love nonfiction. I love fiction. I love everything, but coming up with the ideas and, and speaking to people who have done it and have multiple like really mainstream books out there. It's kind of exciting. It, I, I love to, as you know, we were, we were just talking about it offline. I, I have a show talking to authors too. It's every conversation is different. It's dynamic. It's so interesting to hear how they come up with their ideas, how they execute on it. It's really, really fun stuff. Yeah. Dedicated with Doug Brunt. I, you know, that's, it's now on my playlist and another thing, cause like, you know, listen, there's a lot of original thoughts out there, but yours is pretty cool. It's like, you know, you have a drink, you, you have a drink for each author and you're like, okay, this is the drink they have. Everybody kind of has a unique spin on conversations and interviews. So I'm really excited to check out your, your podcast because, Hey, you know what? I like to learn from other people. That's the same thing. When we talk to authors, all of us like to learn from other people, from their experiences and their techniques. Yeah, true. And I, I, I have to say the, uh, starting off the drink, the show with the guest favorite drink is helpful. It's a nice lubricant. We had Jack Carr on and he was, we we're just drinking bourbon on the rocks. And, uh, by the end of the show, we were, you know, we'd gone back for seconds and thirds. So we were, we were getting into it by the end of the show. Uh, I can only imagine. You know, I, I stopped drinking on the show a long time ago because of that. I'm like, whoa, I don't know what I'm going to say. There's going to be like some state secrets flowing out of here, especially with Amon. We both be like, oh, well, you know, there was this top secret. I'm just kidding. Yeah, we'll have to have to redact those episodes a little bit. Exactly. Uh, Doug, we're here to talk about a lot of things. And one of them is your new book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel. And right before we hit the record button, you're like, hey, you know, what? there's a lot of espionage and mystery about it. Mm -hmm. I what is the premise? I, I like it coming from the investigative realm of like, you know, these books, but what's the premise of the book? Well, I'll, I'll take you to the very beginning. In September 29, 1913, Rudolf Diesel is traveling from Belgium to England on an overnight passenger ferry across the North Sea. And at this time, unlike today, his name has really been erased from history. And, and as you find out the reasons why in the book, deliberately erased. But at the time, in 1913, just before World War I, he's an international celebrity. The diesel engine which he invented, often misspelled with a lowercase d because nobody knows there was a Rudolf Diesel, was taking over as the dominant power source for inland use, for rail. You know, they used to use steam engines shoveling wood or coal into this, you know, furnace to boil water, to drive a steam engine, to drive a train, you know, crazy rudimentary technology. But it also had taken over as the only option for the submarine. Kerosene gasoline engines did not work for the submarine. So there would be no U-boat or submarine warfare in World War One, but for diesel or World War Two. So he's traveling across the North Sea and he disappears in the middle of the night. They get up in the morning. He's supposed to have breakfast with his traveling companions at 6 a.m. on the on the overnight passenger ferry. And he's gone. They stop the ship at sea. They search it. All they can find is his hat and his coat folded at the stern of the ship by the rail on the promenade deck. And he's gone. So then this mystery explodes. 
it's the front page headline of newspapers from the United States all through Western Europe to Russia about what happened to Diesel. And the prevailing theories at the time are maybe suicide. You know, it seemed to mark where he might have jumped off the ship. But there are also two murder suspects identified. One is Kaiser Wilhelm II, the emperor of Germany. And the other is John Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil, and at that time, the richest man in the world. And the reason people are speculating Kaiser Wilhelm may have done it, or sent agents to do it, of course, is what I already identified. The submarine was an, an increasingly important weapon at that time. And there was a, an Anglo-German naval arms race happening, which was one of the main reasons we got into World War I to begin with, this competition between the two. And everybody was scrambling, scrambling for diesel expertise. And Rudolf Diesel, because the engine was still so young, he, he had just released it in 1897 and was still getting figured out, especially for the exacting requirements of undersea use. He was still the man. You still needed Rudolph to kind of get your submarine program going. And then the, the armies and or the navies of every major power were looking for his help. The other reason was Diesel imagined that the engine would never run on petroleum that Rockefeller was pulling out of the ground. His idea was that it could run on vegetable or nut oil. And he won the 1900 Paris World's Fair with a diesel engine running on peanut oil. So he, he was saying, I can break the fuel monopolies. We don't need to live like this. You know, we can either make coal tar from coal or we can just grow our own fuel. So his, his idea was that every nation in the world could produce its own fuel through farmers. And, uh, of course, this was not good for Rockefeller. So there was speculation that the big oil trusts had sent, you know, maybe a quote unquote Pinkerton detective over there to to knock him off. So that sets up the mystery. And I, and I follow events. You know, I really sort of bring you up to speed up to 1913 about how diesel uh, manage the, the invention and what Wilhelm and Rockefeller were doing in that time and why the diesel engine became the center of the focus of this period of time. You know, investigating something like this is, it's gotta be interesting. Cause like when you said about what the world's perception of world war one and world war two, and like that whole era is really based at the macro level, unless you look at it, like, you know, you really dig deep into history you're really not going to know what's going on. So when you brought up the diesel thing, I'm like, I didn't know there's a guy named Rudolph Diesel that made the diesel engine. I'm like, you know, because yeah. it's to me, it's like it's almost like ancient history. It's almost like diesel. Cool. I know about it. Um, big trucks, et cetera. But when you start bringing up all the other intricacies of it, yeah. huh? Yeah, you can run on a peanut oil. You can do this. You can do that. And yeah, it does like, pull Willie into mystery. Nelson, in uh, 2007, Willie Nelson ran his tour bus around America on recycled kitchen grease, you know, basically vegetable oil. I remember this, yeah. We yeah. don't need to be running around fighting wars over fuel. We can grow our own fuel, which was always the vision of diesel going back more than 120 years. And then you think about an assassin, assassination, and you're like, ah, okay, this makes sense. And if he had no su suicidal ideations before, it's like, that's kind of interesting. So when you're putting this book together, and it's a it's an in-depth book, you know, I'm I'm just going by the, the amount of pages that are in this book right now because I am going to read this. You know, I get a ton of books, but I am actually going to read this because of that, the investigative aspect of it. How do you well, dive into this? And, I, you know, I had a, a lot of folks like you two who were former CIA, former FBI, as well as uh, police detectives examine my evidence in my case that I put forward. And so I was in archives around Europe and America delving through old documents from that time period, even doing you know, those old microfiche newspaper searches with headlines, because now that stuff is pretty searchable. So there was a crazy three-week period post the night of his disappearance 
where every reporter was on the beat. So that it was every every British, American, German, French newspaper was following this. And then, you know, as you, you'll discover in the book, it sort of halted. And then World War One came and just wiped everything else off the front page. But back in 1917 or 1920, it would be very hard to go back and investigate these. It'd be very hard to find all these newspaper articles that had so many conflicting details. But there was there were pieces of hard evidence in there. Much of that now has been scanned. And because you can do a keyword search or, you know, search around this period, you can actually, you know, from your chair, it's like library level research, go find all this stuff that's in newspaper archives that you can access online now. So the investigation and, and more and more gets scanned and uploaded into online databases every day. So the investigation is much easier now than it was even 20 years ago to pull that piece of it together. Um, but I was on the ground throughout Europe for a few years pulling all this together. And uh, former UK Special Forces folks looked at it who are in the intelligence community and and uh, agree 100% with the conclusion of the book because every other theory but the one I put forward has massive gaping holes in it. And even at the time, you know, in October 1913, you could look at this and say, clearly it's not these other things, um, and which is what got me started on it. I had a theory of the case and then was able to put it together. Yes. All of oh, that is just, no, that's, it, it's fascinating to me. So like the level of detail, like just you even talking about that, having the clothes folded when he went missing, it paints a picture and it kind of just draws you into that story. But then, you know, the level of detail you get into, because you said there were conflicting bits of detail. How did you root through that? And how did you decide what to use to create your narrative and to come up with your theory? Well, in order to tell the book, it was a very complicated book to organize because it is part biography. It's part mini biographies of the suspects. It's a true crime whodunit. It's a primer on European diplomacy of turn of the century that you know got us into this World War One mess anyway, which was the motive for many of the players involved. And it's sort of like a combustion engines for dummies too. Like you got to understand how the diesel engine works a little bit and why it why it matters and why the sources of fuel mattered and things like that. Um, there were certain facts you could count on from archives and primary research that had been, you know, documented. Um, and then, you know, it's sort of triangulating in on the, you know, the events you could take to the bank based on different sources of information. Um, and I actually was able to get into archives that had much of Diesel's own uh, writings, his letters, his diaries, all in German. Much of it held either in the Deutsches Museum in Germany or in the, the Mann Museum, Mann being Maschinenfabrik Augsburg Nuremberg, which was his partner company back in the 1890s to develop the engine, which still exists today and is still one of the main diesel manufacturers today. And they have a whole museum with much of his stuff. And so I actually contacted my old high school, a buddy who's working in the English department there. And he put me in touch with the guy who runs the German language department. And he translated all these reams of material that were just gold. I mean, it's like the geeky side of Indiana Jones, you know, the, the, the bookish one. When, but when you find something that if someone else came across it, it would be, oh, well, that's kind of cool, but, you know, meaningless to me. But in the context of this story, you'll be like, wait, Winston Churchill said what? Days after Diesel said this? And certain things, it's just you find it in the context of what you're putting together as an investigator. It's it's gold. So those were really fun moments in, in the period of years of doing the research. Well, you brought up a great word, one of my favorite ones, investigation. 
Now, what is your background? I mean, to put this together, like to me, like if I'm going to run a case or back when I used to actually work and do cases, but <laughs> I would do like a kind of like a timeline. Okay. This is when this happened, this happened, this happened. And this is kind of where I want to go with the case. What's your background where you learn how to do kind of, you're basically being an investigator. You're almost like a investigator reporting on history. Well, I, I'm not naturally, or maybe I'm naturally an investigator, but I'm not professionally an investigator and have not been prior to this, but I am professionally a writer and have always done tons of research for my fiction. So this is my first nonfiction book for, for listeners. It's a, it's a narrative nonfiction in the style of like an Eric Larson or a David Gran. Um, my fiction has always been deeply researched, though, with lots of interviews, you know, primary sources, as well as some secondary research. And so I've always loved that piece. I think it helps my fiction when I'm telling a story. And if I've deeply researched it, I can bring it to the page with more force and credibility. And I've always loved the research piece of it. And the way this book got started, I bought a boat years ago, seven years ago. And it's a, it was a bigger boat, but it had these two gasoline engines in it. And I was talking to the guy, you know, I'm, I'm going to fix the boat up. So it was old and needed some work. And the guy said, well, you know, the first thing you should do is repower this boat with diesel engines. And I, seven years ago, was like most people are today. Why diesel? Like, why is that different from gas? I don't understand. I thought it was just a combustion engine. What's the difference? And he goes through this, this list of reasons, which is, you know, on a 200-gallon tank, you'll get two, three times the range. Diesel is much more efficient. 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines. Zero from diesel. It's not flammable, the fuel under normal conditions. And there are no fumes. Gasoline is very fumey fuel. Diesel is not. There are no fumes. So I, so I, went, I was like, well, this all sounds great. So I repowered the boat with diesel. And then a few years later was going through ideas for a new novel. I was kind of in between books and I was just tinkering around online, looking at cool things, hoping, you know, something might stick or inspire me to do something. And I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea. And on the list was Rudolph Diesel, 1913, the story I mentioned to you to open the book. And I was like, even now, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is connected to my diesel engines, you know, like still not knowing. And of course, took a deep dive and then didn't come out of the rabbit hole for five years until the, the book was done. Um, but had an early theory of what might have might have been. It's almost like, you know, when you look at those paintings, they're all dots. And then like, if you stare at it for long enough, it turns into like a mermaid or whatever is in there. It was like that. I just had read about this, just being curious and fascinated by it. And then suddenly like the dots showed up. I'm like, this must be what happened. Nothing else makes sense. And the more I got into it and found little pieces of information, everything supported that case. And as you guys know, like murder cases are almost always solved on circumstantial evidence. You know, it's, it's rare to say, to have some eyewitness that said, I saw the knife go in, here's how it happened. And by the way, eyewitness testimony is, is some of the least reliable stuff out there. It's generally the circumstantial stuff that does it. So, you know, it's a circumstantial case, but it's rock solid. I love that you use multiple sources through this. I like, I completely understand where you're coming from when you, you kind of, you get the thread of something fascinating and you just can't let go of it and you just keep pulling and pulling and pulling. But the fact that you didn't just take the surface level and went a little bit deeper is outstanding because you're absolutely right. Diesel is a term that we throw out every single day, but no one ever thinks about where it came from or what the history of that was until I read the title of your book zero clue of who invented the diesel engine and why that was you know important or what it could have been yeah yeah and if you think about its prevalence even today 
Like imagine a pineapple grown in some tropical region. All the heavy farm equipment used to, to grow the pineapple is on diesel. It then gets loaded on a truck to go down to port. Anything larger than a passenger car is diesel. A crane puts it on the ship. The crane is diesel. The ship, the 100% of cargo ships that take things around the world, diesel. Goes across the ocean, goes into port, unloaded onto a truck, onto a train. All trains are diesel. And then it goes to some refrigeration plant. You know, many of the power plants that power refrigeration electricity are diesel. I mean, nothing is happening even today without diesel. There's some stat of you know global, it's like kilo ton miles or something like that. The, the amount of goods that are shipped over a number of miles per year is something in the you know many trillions. And 99.9% of it gets there by diesel. A very small fraction is uh, the, the turbine engines of jets. But diesel powers the global economy. There, the global economy would not exist as it does without, without diesel. And that's, that's present day. And the fundamental technology of the engine, engine is the same as what Rudolph put out in 1897. Enhancements, of course, but it's basically the same. Now, backtracking, you think about the automobile, and then you think, okay, why not get rid of someone that's going to knock out, really, a trillion dollar, eventually going to be a trillion, trillions of dollar business. Mm -hmm. So this guy was like, kind of like, hey, you know what, if we don't, it's almost like getting rid of Elon Musk. You never know what he's going to do next. <laughs> Back then, it was like, where is diesel going to go next? So it must yeah. have been like, oh, you know what, when you're, when you start messing with people's pocketbooks, yeah, you know. And if you go back to 1913, it was not at all settled what the fuel was going to be. In 1905, New York City had a huge taxicab fleet, uh, several thousand cars, all electric. There was a charging station for electric cars for the New York taxi fleet on Broadway in Times Square. And then they had trouble. You know, Edison was trying to figure out the battery for the electric car. Ford even made an attempt in partnership with Edison to build an electric car. The battery technology was, was a little difficult. Uh, so that didn't come through, but having a, an electric car or engines running on vegetable or, or peanut oil were very much in play. And Standard Oil was really on the ropes because all of that money, Standard Oil, you know, in, in 1900 and 1905, Rockefeller's the richest man in the world. All the money he'd made was on kerosene. They were, they were in the illumination business. And then the electric light bulb came along and wiped that away. And he was scrambling. He needed the combustion engine and the automobile to take off in order to survive into the 20th century. Uh, so they were. it was a very shaky time for Rockefeller and Standard Oil, and it was not at all settled that petroleum was gonna be the way forward. So he was, uh, he was a bit like a cornered animal when the Edison light bulb came along. When you bring up you know, this whole story and doing your research about it and knowing about it and looking at the old newspaper clippings and microfiche and everything, it kind of makes you wonder like, it's really a call for real investigative journalism because mm -hmm. like in our future, you know, in the future of my kids future and yours and everything, what are they going to research back? And is there going to be like really solid investigative reporting going out there? So it's like critical that if something does happen, that there's good records and not just, you know, you need people who have that critical eye who can dig up information and then also have solid and reliable information. Yeah, it's true. I mean, this is slightly off topic, but I think the, the decline of local news is is uh, scary in that regard because they were our sort of consumer watchdog things. You know, you'd see John Stossel or Arnold Diaz out there doing those consumer watchdoggy segments. And that was sort of the purview of local news in some ways. Now, there's, you know, the Internet opens up new ways for that sort of thing to happen. 
Um, but if you're, to your point, it, it needs to happen. Got to collect that information, right? Well, not just yeah. that, but you know, the, the timing that you have of this, you know, it, it kind of lends itself to the character, but you, there's some comparisons to this book about it being a little bit Sherlock Holmes, like and with that mm-hmm. kind of investigative and the deductive reasoning and observational discovery. That's a hell of a, co- uh, a comparison. Right? I, I love that review. Equal parts Walter Isaacson and Sherlock Holmes. That's exactly what I'm I'm hoping for. I'm hoping what the the reader uh, will take away. Yeah. I that I would be framing that one if that were me. <laughs> well, the the other piece of it, along with that, is the the era. It's this gilded age, sort of late gilded age. Sort of I, I refer to it sometimes as Downton Abbey, the early seasons. You know, prior. To World War One, and the cast of characters in the book really is phenomenal. And you you get to the point where you're reading it, you start forgetting that you're reading nonfiction. But the the person who took so the way the licensing schemes would work back then is someone would acquire the exclusive rights to market and manufacture the diesel engine for a national territory. So in North America, it was Adolphus Bush, the founder of Anheuser Busch, hmm. and he acquired the diesel engine initially to provide the power to pump water in his breweries and energy for re- refrigeration. But he also developed a side business that was developing diesel engines for the U.S. Navy, for their submarine fleet. In Russia, it was the Nobel family. And it is the same Nobel family as Alfred Nobel. But this is another fascinating story that you can, this is like another five-year rabbit hole to go down. But the Nobel family founded the Russian oil business at the turn of the century. And Alfred Nobel was slightly involved, but it was with two older brothers who developed Russian oil and also had a had a munitions manufacturing business. And they took the exclusive license for diesel in Russia and built diesels for the Russian Navy. Um, the, the, the cast of characters is just so far and wide. Churchill plays a big role. Of course, Kaiser Wilhelm and his Grand Admiral Tirpitz plays an enormous role. Um, and, you know, Rockefeller, as we've discussed, Edison, Diesel and Edison have this phenomenal meeting when diesel comes to America in 1912. And that his notes from his diary are just hilarious about it in some ways. In a way, they they, they clashed more than than got along. Uh, and his observations about Edison and also of America at that time are fascinating because he comes over with this very scientific engineering point of view. But he was also kind of a humanitarian type and like slightly a poetic guy. I mean, I, I think in that era in particular, engineers felt a dual role to be both a, a, a scientist and a social theorist. And so he has really, really fascinating observations about a turn of the century in America, too, you know, from a, a European's take on things. You talk about a cast of characters, huh? This is like, you know, if, okay, because, you know, history is starting to come back in. You have Oppenheimer just came out, Oppenheimer. And uh, now you have like this, who have, it's like a real cast of characters. It's a real everything. It's almost like the who done it of who back then. And like, you know, we're all about the same ages a little bit. Amy is a little younger and I'm a little younger, older. I don't know, but <laughs> anyway, like those I names. I have never you... been accused of being the younger. <laughs> <laughs> when you bring up like the Rockefellers and everybody, a lot of people don't realize how very important they were back then and how oh, yeah. significant they were. So this is really cool, man. Yeah. Somebody like Rockefeller had the power to shape wars, influence wars, start and stop wars. I mean, it was um, incredible. If, and if you look at their net worth, just doing the inflation calculation doesn't quite capture it. Um, if you do, if you compare it to sort of the money supply, there are, there are other metrics a little bit more accurate to capture his financial influence of the time. 
if you just do it by inflation, then Musk is wealthier per his time. But if you do the more accurate measures as a percentage of money supply, as a percentage of GDP, Rockefeller is a multiple of Elon Musk's wealth today. I mean, it, it's extraordinary the power he and a, and a handful of others had at that time. We do. We often talk about, you know, setting being a key factor in stories and you couldn't have picked a better one. I mean, there is that bit of a romanticism around it, but that era, you're right. It's like a crossroads of world history. And that in itself is going to draw people to the book. You add in actual history and a little bit of true crime. And this has to be like catnip for like multiple genres just to come and latch on to this. Uh, it was certainly catnip for me. It kept me fascinated right? for five years, and I kind of missed working on it. You know, Diesel's like my imaginary friend. I tell my family I'm going to go hang out with with uh, Rudolph for a little while. But you're you're right about the era that, and Dalton Abbey does catch capture that sort of hinge of history of what World War One meant to the world. Because prior to World War One, all of Europe really lived in a different way, a more feudal, not not better or worse. You might say slightly more romantic, all these sort of courts of Europe, the monarchies of Europe. But think about the number of empires and and monarchs that went away before and after that war. The Russian Empire goes, and it's and we've got the Bolsheviks. The German Empire goes. The Austria-Hungary Empire goes. The Ottoman Empire goes. All of these things turn into then you know Turkey with a prime minister and Germany with the Weimar Republic and Austria you know split into a number of things. So it's Europe lives in a totally different way, and that trickled down in a way to how ordinary citizens lived as well. I'm ready to read it. <laughs> so I'm like, like, now, the one thing that, you know, we're going to have to see when we read this book, and I'm sure everybody's just dying to get into it. Um, you know, thriller authors in particular are accused of being too hard to hide like plot points from. And mm -hmm. so I'll be really interested if, you know, I can pick up your breadcrumbs before you actually give me the whodunit. I, I think you will be astonished. It, even with your the, the investigative talents you two have, you might you might have an inclination as you get close to it. But uh, I think even the thriller writers who have read it, like Brad Thor and Lee Child and others, were really astonished with how it how it wraps up. But then also entirely persuaded that it, there was no other way. That's wow. a major accolade right there. If you got Brad Thor and uh -huh. child to read that and be like, okay, yeah, no, no, this is, this is good. Then bravo, sir. Thank you. Well, Doug, I appreciate you coming on and talking about the book. Everybody, the book is the mysterious case of Rudolph diesel. I should put my author in like, you know, the mysterious case of Rudolph diesel on there. Oh, that was good. I know. <laughs> I, I might have to, you know, read these books sometime, like actually on air. Yeah. 19 September. That's the release date. September 19 pub date. Yeah. All right. September. I will have, you know what? We're going to re I'm going to read it. I might have to send this one out to Ama, but I, I love my goal now is to read the books after I do the interview and then do like a real review. You know, so many authors out there, they do, they write the books, people read them, but they don't get like, you need to review the books, you know, tell people what you know, what you like about it. Yeah. Well, well round back with me. I'm dying to know what you think. Oh, I will. Believe me. And Doug, I appreciate you coming on the show. I want to have you back on because there was a couple things I wanted to get to today, but kind of press for time, I like to keep it around 30 minutes or so. But one thing I do want to talk to you next time you come on, if you can come on again, is your writing technique. I want to know how you went from the fiction to the nonfiction world and kind of your research process. Everybody's so different and like the, how you how you spend time with like Rudolph Diesel to get these books on there. 
Yeah. Well, the, the research piece was the bridge between the fiction and nonfiction and just the, the love of telling a good story. And I think in this case with Diesel, I just stumbled across the greatest story of the 20th century. And I hope I've done justice to it. Um, but the, the research was also, a, a, you know, a labor of passion, whatever, whatever you call that. I, I loved every minute of it. Well, you went from, you know, talking Wall Street to political campaigns to tennis, of course, about pushing your kids. And now this, I mean, that every story you have is compelling in its own right. So bravo for your choices. Um, to be able to do that in nonfiction, that in itself, I, I can't applaud that enough to get anybody to get excited about a nonfiction book. It can be a little difficult. Oh, thanks. Yeah, One of the writers I admire most, who, who we lost too early, is Michael Crichton. And one of the reasons mm -hmm. I admired him so much is his range of work. He did everything from Jurassic Park. And he's always in the zeitgeist. You know, he did Jurassic Park when chaos theory was being discussed. And he did Rising Sun when Japanese business taking mm -hmm. over nature was being discussed. And Disclosure was sort of early in the workplace harassment thing. And so he just took on so many different topics. So And ER on the TV side. So he just <laughs> did different stuff, did it all really well. And so I've, I've always... Uh, admired that. And my approach has been similar in the sense that I want to take on things that I think have relevance today that are also fascinating and, and draw me in. I will be eagerly following your career, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.